Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. Well, good morning. Today we get to talk about uh, baptism. And I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to tell you up front exactly what I'm going to be asking for possible uh, takeaway at the end so that you know up front. Forgive me. One time we set uh, an incense candle on here and burned it, and it created a crease in here, and it sticks my notes to it if I don't have it turned the right way. So got that fixed. Uh, if you're here today and you uh, are still seeking, you're not sure of your faith, then today you're going to get a chance in this message to hear uh, a perspective about how faith can be relationship. Uh, most of what you probably have heard in the past in seeking God has probably had a lot of religious, almost, uh, you may have had a hard time with some of it because it almost comes across superstitious. We're going to talk about baptism, which is, uh, has some core meaning for what it means to have a relationship with Christ, and you're going to get to hear that today. And at the end, I'll give you an invitation to respond. There's no pressure. We want you to be convinced that God is real, and we want you to respond to that in your own way. We're not here to pressure you into that decision. If you're here today and you have uh, made a decision to follow Christ and never even baptized, then I want you to pay attention today because we're going to talk about why baptism and the meaning of it and give you an invitation at the end of the service, yes, to get wet in your current clothes if you want and be baptized. Okay, so fair enough. And if you've been here and you've been a Christian for a long time, um, you're going to have a chance to hear some things about faith that I think uh, even for me, uh, I find myself getting caught in some aberrations, some corruptions of what faith really is sometime. And we're going to actually highlight some of those things. And there's going to be a really meaningful application for you. In fact, I would direct all of you this week to the After the Message, which is actually already posted. Uh, you can find it, uh, the link on Facebook, or you can find it on the city uh, right now. And it has five days' worth of devotionals that I think uh, that apply to, our, to today's message that I think can bring a huge amount of freedom in all of our lives. Because so many of us live with a, a thought process surrounding repentance and baptism that keeps us bound, uh, keeps us in guilt, keeps us in shame. And I think God wants to bring freedom to you in that area today. So would you allow me to start by praying? Lord, thank you that you're here. And I pray, Father, that you would help each one of us to listen and hear where you want to bring freedom into our life, where you want to bring your life to us and speak to us through those moments today. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I was preparing for this message this last week, I, I heard this story. This uh, one pastor uh, had a, a group of friends in his church who had invited this guy who didn't know anything about church, didn't know anything about Jesus, had been coming to church for two, three, four weeks, and all of a sudden walks in on a day, and at this particular church, they had to set up portable baptistries in, in the front. So they had like three pools in front. It was a very large church. They were going to baptize like 50, 60 people that day. And he walks in, and the music's going, and the lights are going, and everything's really cool. And he goes, man, I didn't know churches did hot tub parties. This is the coolest thing in the whole world. And they kind of explained to him what baptism was, and he went, well, that's kind of weird. I don't really understand that. And I think some of us look at baptism sometimes, and we think it is just this kind of mechanical almost um, formulaic type thing. And so I wanted you to just have a little fun and watch this video about baptism, which and I think is a good portrayal of how some people might view it in our uh, mail-order uh, consumer-oriented society. 
Okay, so there weren't that many laughs, which tells you something about my sense of humor. I thought that was like the funniest video, and I've been looking forward to using that for 10 years, which is the reason why it doesn't have an MP3 player. Half of you probably don't even remember what those boom boxes are like, right? Because you probably don't have them anymore. Uh, baptism is, is this event all throughout Scripture and all throughout history that is this community-celebrated event, and it's, it's something we celebrate today. I've had the privilege recently of talking with people who are here uh, and they are not sure of their faith. We might call them seekers. They're really interested in God. They believe in God. They're not sure about Jesus. I've had uh, great experiences recently having conversations with people who are very new to their faith, and I've even had uh, conversations uh, about this and, and other things like it with people who have been around the faith for many years. And what uh, became really clear to me in some of those conversations is that sometimes we as a church don't do a really good job of talking about the foundational things. Because in all of those relationships, there were very clear foundational things that were not really well understood. So today's really purpose, besides what I said up front in terms of the response, is just to, to look at this because baptism is an important concept in the Bible. And we've got a guy whose name is named after it, John the Baptist, right? We've got Jesus who was baptized. We've got uh, the disciples who their message was repent and be baptized. We have uh, church history for 2,000 years where baptism has been one of the central things that the church practices and celebrates as a sacrament, which that's a big church word, but sacrament is just basically a word that says it, it is a sacredly commanded uh, act that we follow Jesus in. Um, so today to talk about this, I'm just going to go through a series of questions. We're going to talk about what is baptism? Does baptism save us? Why do we baptize? How do we baptize? Who do we baptize? And should I be rebaptized? And then finally, we're going to finish with what is Jesus asking of us today? And we're going to try to go through them very quickly, very concisely, and uh, hopefully very, in a very helpful manner. So the first one, what is baptism? In Romans 6, uh, it's one of the foundational passages on uh, baptism. Paul is actually addressing the, uh, in, in this conversation there a religious mindset. It's this religious mindset that, that, that kind of says, well, so I've been baptized, so I believed in Christ. Uh, everything's taken care of. I've got this magic insurance policy so I can go on sinning. And I'm already forgiven, so it really doesn't matter. But he's talking about baptism context, and it says this. It says... Uh, um, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning uh, so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Oh, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Now, let's look at a few phrases in there to understand what's actually happening. The first phrase is baptized into Christ Jesus. A lot of times we approach baptism as our insurance ticket, as something for us to experience to be forgiven of sin. And there is an element of that that is focused on us, but this is really about Jesus. It's all about Jesus, first and foremost about him. The fact that he is the one who saves us, it's not us who save ourselves by our actions. And then you look at the combination of the words into Christ Jesus and just as Christ Jesus and, it, and it, uh, that along with some of the other places in the Bible that talk about, about baptism clearly say that this is something we practice as a public statement that we are followers of Jesus, that we're identifying 
with him. And it gives this rich symbolism in this passage of, of going under the water that we, when we go under the water, that's the reason we immerse uh, people is when you go under the water, it's a symbol of the, the death of Christ, of us uh, saying we're taking up our cross to follow. We are losing our own lives and surrendering the right to lead our own lives. But it doesn't stop there. It goes on in verse 5. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Now notice, this is not magical language. This is not stating that this is some sort of magical event, which I think a lot of us sometimes look at it as. This is relational language. If we do this, we are, it says what? United with him. This is a real thing that God wants to do in our life, the meaning of this, that it shapes our identity and how we think about ourselves and how we think about God. It's one of these experiences that is a point-in-time memory for us to look back on and say, we chose then to be united with Him, to be identified with Christ. And if united with Him in absolute surrender, it says we will also be united with Him in His resurrection, which is the whole symbolism of coming out of the water. It's a touch point or, uh, where, we, where we're basically saying Jesus is real and, and, and Jesus becomes real to us. There's real power in following Him in obedience in baptism. Uh, it's not just upon death and heaven that we get this real power. It's not just uh, for a next life as an insurance ticket to heaven that we get this. It's, it's for now, too. Verse 6 goes on. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. You see, there's freedom God wants to bring now. Last week we referenced it this way in referring to Ephesians 5 where it talks about the washing of the water with the Word and we use the, 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 the clips or the, not the clips, the illustrations of Michelangelo as, uh, talking about how his statues became so beautiful and how all he did was chip away the ugly marble to reveal the beauty inside. And, and that's really what God wants to do with this process. Baptism is a symbol, is an act of obedience to Christ that says we are completely surrendering our lives, uh, even unto death. It's a symbol of washing us clean and, and bringing transforming, transformation power, transformational power to our lives, infusing us with resurrection power. Uh, Jesus came out of the water when he was baptized, and we see the image of the Holy Spirit, God's presence coming on him and saying this over him, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And that's what God actually wants to say over each one of us on a regular basis, but especially in baptism. You are my beloved son or daughter, and I am well pleased in you. So the next question, does baptism save us? The easiest answer to that given throughout history is, okay, so Jesus is on the cross. He's got two thieves next to him. And one of the thieves actually responds with a sense of repentance and says, would you save me? And Jesus looks over at him and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And if we look at that and think about it, there's no opportunity for this man to be saved by baptism, right? He's not getting off the cross to be baptized. Baptism is not what saves us. It's his grace that saves us. It's being right in our heart with God. That saves us. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. 
It's not your own work. It's not the fact that you get baptized, you pray, you do the right things, you give the right things, you get things in order. It's not your works. It is a gift of God so that no one can boast. So baptism is really just the symbol, the celebration of a work that God's done in our hearts through something we talk about in the church called repentance. And repentance is one of these things where, this is really for all of us, repentance is one of these things that we so easily, easily misunderstand. In Luke 3, we see John the Baptist baptizing people, and people are coming to him in droves wanting to be baptized. And he actually confronts the crowd coming to him. The crowd coming to him was a bunch of religious people, primarily. And he basically calls them a a brood of vipers. And, And why does he do that? The text is very clear in that instance that it's because there's the, they, they have this corrupted idea of what repentance is. They have a corrupted idea of what faith is. So the question I think we wrestle with today is what does a right heart look like? What does it mean to really repent? And let me just outline a, a, a classically well-accepted biblical outline of what repentance is because it's a process. It first starts with Conviction. Conviction is a sense of guilt and shame. A lot of times we don't like to talk about guilt and shame, and you'll hear me talk about how guilt and shame is often associated with a religious mindset, not a relational mindset, but there is a sense of healthy guilt and shame that God brings us, right? I mean, we all know at times we've done something wrong. We feel that sense of guilt, and we know something needs to be changed, right? We all feel that. We all look at that, right? The problem is that religion, it's not the problem with guilt and shame. It's that when we have a religious mindset, it short-circuits this process and it leaves us stuck there. And we live our life in guilt and shame. The second step of the process of, refl- of getting our heart right with God is confession. And confession is simply not necessarily going to a booth, talking to a priest. It is talking about what you're convicted of talking about it with your friends, talking about it with your family, talking about it with with your small group. And the Bible says this about confession. This is a really powerful thing that we often neglect. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of some of our unrighteousness. That's what a lot of us think. All unrighteousness. James 5.16 says this, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that what? You may be healed. Confession is a really important thing. And yet it's scary and uncomfortable, isn't it, to us? To think about confessing our sins to others. But confession, without that in the process, confession is the essence of what brings, brings into the light the things that we fear, the things that we do in darkness, the things that bind us and keep us in slavery. Confession is what separates the hypocrites from those who are authentic. Because in confession, all of a sudden, we get to be authentic and we can be healed because things are out in the open. We're honest and we're real with God and with others. And confession isn't something that's just general. It's not, we like to practice it. I know I'm more comfortable practicing it this way. We like to practice it as saying, I'm sorry, I, I kind of I offended you and I did this. And we say something very, very generic and very general like that. Confession in a biblical sense is very specific. 
It says, I did this against you. This is how I sinned against you. And we name the sin. And we tell the consequences of that sin. And we own it. There's no excuse making. There's no blame shifting. And yet, and yet I know, uh, I think a lot of us do this because we don't like bad emotions. We tend to have people come to us and, and we encourage excuse making. We encourage blame, blame shifting instead of real confession because people come to us and we say, oh, uh, you don't have to feel so bad. You had a really rough day. You had a really rough week. You, you had a really rough childhood. Whatever it is, we say, you're doing so well. And we actually train people to avoid difficult emotions and avoid true confession. We train them to blame shift and make excuses. And the fact of the matter is, the Bible teaches us that we will never be free until we take complete responsibility for our choices. Until we stop blaming our addictions and our pain and our faults and our sins on other people. That we take responsibility for our actions. Confession is clear, specific, and it takes full ownership. The third process is actually in this process of getting our heart right with God is repentance. And Luther, on October 31st, 1517, posted his 95 theses on the Wittenberg Cathedral. And the very first one said this, all of a Christian's life is one of repentance. But this is an often misunderstood practice. It's, it's something that gets corrupted in the way we think about it. Repentance at its core is really about idolatry. Because sin is about idolatry. And, it, and, and repentance is, is choosing to put away that idol of a false god and worship the real god. And the reality is that we all, every one of us in this room, probably practice idolatry, if not on a daily basis, on a weekly basis. Let me give you just one simple example, and there's probably plenty that you can think of. When we choose to go home after a long day and we choose to believe that we can be replenished and rest more by watching TV rather than spending time with God, we are creating an idol that says we believe this entertainment will bring us more rest and more peace and more replenishment than you will, God. When we choose to spend money on entertainment or material things versus uh, caring for our retirement or caring for our family or our debt like God requires or giving like God requires, we're basically saying that we trust this entertainment, this thing to make us more happy, to provide more meaning in our life than you, God. And we're practicing idolatry. Repentance is ultimately about a clear rejection of something we are worshiping other than God to meet a need in our lives and putting God at the center of everything instead. Now, in order to help you understand true confession, let me talk about some of the aberrations of it. Repentance is not mere confession. It's not saying sorry and then saying sorry again and then saying sorry again and then saying sorry again and never changing. Some of you are married to that person. And some of you are that person at the same time. You constantly say sorry and we never see change. 
The second trap of, uh, of repentance is, is what I'll call religious repentance. And it's this idea that repentance also entails this comparative aspect that we have in it. That we say sorry, but we tag on to it. That, uh, thank you, God, I didn't go as far in sin as so-and-so. And thank you, I'm not like that. And, you know, we do that all the time. Today, that, that sounds more like, um, I do good more, I do more good than bad. And so therefore I'm okay with God. Have you heard that? We all, we all say, we probably all said that and we hear it all the time. Jesus tells a story of two men going to the temple. And one of them, the first one is this religious guy. He's a religious leader and he walks in and he starts praying and he's praying these flowery, wonderful prayers and walks right up to the altar area and, and, and basically says, thank you, God, that I'm not as sinful. Thank you that you forgive me, but thank you that I'm not as sinful as this person over here. He's comparing himself. Again, it's blame shifting. It's excuse making. And we pay more attention to make ourselves feel better rather than face this true repentance process and the difficulty of the emotions. We pay more attention to comparing ourselves to others to make us feel better rather than doing this process well. And as a result, we end up getting into gossip. We end up getting into putting other people down when we should be doing something else because that's the way we make ourselves feel better instead of doing it the right way. And Jesus says of this religious man that he will go away still condemned. And yet the other man, who is so utterly sinful in the eyes of all of the culture, comes in, won't even go up near, stands at far off, far at a distance, kneels down, showing tremendous anguish, names his sin specifically, tells God how awful he is and pleads for his forgiveness and asks for him to change him. And Jesus says, this man is justified and he'll be welcomed in my presence. Third, repentance is not for the purpose of gaining God's blessing. That's actually more of a pagan religion thing imposed on Christianity. We don't go and say, I need to get God's blessing and I need to get married, I need to have blessing in my work, I need to have blessing in my family, so I'm going to repent so that God will do that. Yes, sometimes God does that, but repentance is not a tit-for-tat thing. True repentance involves a decisive, completely owned, turning away from the way in which we have sinned fully recognizing it and turning towards God and asking for His Spirit to change us and inviting others into that process to be agents of the Holy Spirit in our lives to help us walk in a new direction. But so often we get caught in worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is this preoccupation that we have with the guilt and the shame of conviction for wrong reasons. And without the proper response to conviction, uh, we may respond to conviction by uh, simply because of fear of consequences. We respond to conviction because afraid it, we're afraid it's going it's to create a relational breach. And so we, we will be convicted and we may confess a certain amount to avoid divorce or avoid getting fired or avoid the tension in the relationship. We sometimes respond to conviction and, and sorrow because of a fear of falling short of our idealized expectations of who we are. We think we're this good and all of a sudden we realize we're not. And we respond to it. 
Sometimes we respond to conviction because, and, and we stay in this sense of sorrow, this a sense of grief or loss or this place where we feel bad about ourselves because if we don't, then we believe we're not truly sorry. And if we don't, we don't believe others will believe we're truly sorry. And so we stay in this place of being hard on ourselves and not accepting forgiveness and not moving beyond the pain. And sometimes we stay there simply because we're so focused on our own brokenness rather than on God's calling and who He's redeeming us to be. 2 Corinthians 7.10 I think is one of the most powerful scriptures in the Bible. It says this, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Leaves no regret. How many of you have confessed, have repented over things that you've done in the past, and yet you still carry regret? That's not godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow leads you to either stay wallowed in your sorrow to pay the price yourself or to pay back others and show them you're serious about being okay and being being the fact that you're wrong or or worldly sorrow leaves us in this place of simply begging God to take away the bad feelings but true repentance looks past the bad feelings stays in the bad feelings and looks beyond that to the motive of the heart king david is an amazing example of this psalm 51 this is in a, a, a verse 3 david is repenting of a grievous sin He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. And then he describes the tip of the spear when it comes to repentance. Against you, God, and you only have I sinned. What? How can he say that? If you understand what he's repenting of here, he's repenting over his adultery with Bathsheba. He used his kingly power to force this married woman to have sex with him. She got pregnant, and then in order to cover up the pregnancy and have her as his wife, he has a faithful soldier, one of the elite soldiers for himself, killed. And in the process, he forces an army officer and a whole unit of people to sin against them, this guy as well, by setting him up to be killed. I mean, come on, David has sinned against everyone in about as grievous of a way as we can think. And yet he says, against you, God, and you only have I sinned. Repentance is all about Jesus. When we sin against his created people or his created earth, we're sinning first and foremost against him. And God and God alone has the power to forgive and to save us. If we really understand that there's so much freedom in understanding this perspective. David's understanding of this and his worship of God is what gave him the ability to confess so pointedly, to repent and trade the lie of idolatry for an act of true worship. But if repentance stops here, the process is still cut short. The next step is restitution. But when we talk about restitution, the first thing that comes to our mind is paying back what we did. Restitution is not penance. 
like we normally think of it. It's not paying back to earn repentance, to earn forgiveness, which is how we often treat it and how our motives and attitudes approach it. Restitution simply starts with this. Stop doing the sin and start doing right. It may include repairing, repaying. It may include repairing the damage done in the relationship, but it's not primarily motivated by the need to repair that and earn anything. In fact, it's motivated by the fact that we can't earn anything. It's motivated by the fact that we can't force reconciliation in our relationships. The only thing that we can be responsible for is being right with God. It is totally God-focused in restitution. So when other people ask you, why are you doing restitution? Why are you paying something back? Our tendency oftentimes is to answer, I'm doing this so that I can repair our relationships, so that we can come to reconciliation. When in actuality, a biblical restitution answer would say this, I grieved God by sinning against Him so greatly when I sinned against you that I am doing this as an act of worship, hoping that the kindness God has shown me that He'll also be able to show you in our relationship. It's all about Jesus. And we still a lot of times stop there. But the fifth one step, I think, is the most important. It's rejoicing. Now, that's weird to say, isn't it? I've just been remorseful and saying I apologize and then I'm rejoicing. Is that really okay? Yes, it is. Isn't that disrespectful? Well, certainly we don't want to do it in a way that offends other people, right? We don't want to rejoice in an offensive way. Tim Keller says this, Repentance without rejoicing will lead to despair. Think about it. If you don't rejoice, then Jesus isn't the center of the process. If you don't rejoice, then other people or yourself are still the center of that process. Because when we repent, what does it say? He is faithful and just to forgive our sins. We have been honest in this repentance process and we are now free to praise God, to rejoice in God, to worship in truth because we've traded giving up an idol, worshiping an idol for worshiping the true God who says that I have forgiven you, I have justified you just as if you never sinned and I am redeeming you to this beautiful place and He's smiling at us. Why are we not smiling? Ourselves. Rejoicing in worship is the best cure for the temptation to worldly sorrow. Rejoicing is what, and understanding that is what helps us leave the regret of life in the past because we're truly freed, truly loved, truly forgiven. Next question. Why do we baptize? We baptize because it's a celebration of this whole repentance and forgiveness process that that has led us to this relationship with Jesus to save us. We baptize because Jesus was baptized and we get to have the amazing privilege of identifying with Him and following Him in that same act. We baptize because Jesus commanded it. In Matthew 28, 19, what we call the Great Commission, and the Christian tradition is one of the, the top two greatest commandments of all to follow Jesus. It says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
We do it because of celebration. We do do it to identify with Jesus. And we do it out of obedience to Jesus. How do we baptize? The word baptize means immerse, dip, plunge. It means uh, it's used in secular literature in Jesus' day of ships sinking and going to the bottom of the ocean. We, you know, there's people who choose to baptize in different ways. And, uh, you know, uh, the predominant way in the Bible, if not the only way, some would argue that it's the only way, is through immersion, through dunking all the way under. And some make this a really divisive point, and, and I think that's silly to make it a divisive point. But I would say this. We have the ability to choose, so why don't we just choose the way that's most predominant in the Bible, the one that is so rich with symbolism of going under the water to die to ourselves, being washed clean, completely pure and clean, and rising again to be infused with the life and power of the Holy Spirit. Why don't we just choose that way? Second, how do we baptize? We we celebrate it in community. How can it be a celebration when you do it by yourself in a bathtub? I mean, is it fun to throw the confetti on your own head in that process? Baptism at its core has always been celebrated as a public confession, a public declaration, a witness of God's saving work in our life. Does it mean you have to be baptized on a Sunday in front of so many people? No, not necessarily, but let me ask this question. Why not? Or maybe a better question. What is in your heart behind your resistance to being baptized in a venue like this in front of so many people? Is it shyness? You see, Jesus is asking us to take up our cross and follow him. That doesn't sound like it has a lot of room for shyness. He's calling us to express a a courage and a public declaration. He's asking us in the Great Commission to be his witnesses, that being baptized is part of being his witness, and then we continue that lifestyle of sharing his goodness with other people, his faith our faith in Him and the reality of Him with other people. If we can't be a witness in a setting like this, will we be a witness when we're out there? And Jesus wants us to do that with somebody else. If we don't want to do it in a public setting, it begs the question, are we still controlled by people-pleasing and a sense of embarrassment? And have we really made Jesus Lord? Who do we baptize? Some churches baptize infants. Since we don't, we dedicate children. We're going to dedicate children after the second service today. Dedication has been a long history all the way from as far back practically as you can go in the Old Testament of children to the Lord, and we, we follow in that tradition. There is a theology of infant baptism, and that theology is essentially based of, on the, a couple passages of the Bible that tie circumcision and baptism in the same conversation. But there are no, uh, there is no evidence of any practice of infant baptism in the Bible. There are two instances where uh, it talks about in Acts that households were baptized. But in each one of those instances, it makes very clear that there was an understanding level, which means that the children, even being baptized, understood the decision they were making at that point. 
historically uh, as well. Uh, and you need to understand, I grew up in an infant baptism setting uh, tradition. Historically, and, and even in today, when I hear people talking about infant baptism, um, most of the time it sounds very religious and superstitious. Because uh, here's what I hear. People come and say, we need to get our child baptized sooner rather than later. Not always, but most people say this. We want our child baptized sooner rather than later because of why? Well, when you press because of why, behind that there is a fear that that child, if they're not baptized, will go to hell if they die. And the reality is that we don't need to even go down that path theologically to address that. First Corinthians 7 we addressed last year talks about children being sanctified through their parents. Jesus' emphasis on the children coming to him and there's so much theology around that which gives us, gives a, a great rich historical theology of the, that children are, if they die, gonna go to heaven. But there does come this age of reason time, which is different for everybody. For some, it's as a, in elementary. For some, it's in high school for, or later when they really understand what they're doing. Now, I'm not saying that infant baptism is evil in any sense at all. The only evilness I think that comes out through infant baptism is when it is treated and when it, it fosters a false sense of this is an insurance ticket. I've heard it at funerals, you probably have too, where somebody lived their life like they were going to hell. And yet, if they were baptized as an infant, you may have heard a, a pastor, a priest, a father, whatever you want to call them, say they're going to go to heaven because they were baptized. There is so much more to this. We baptize adults and we baptize children who have a good understanding, not a perfect understanding, of what they're doing. In the process, another question: Should I be rebaptized? Well, I don't think it's something that we should we should practice if you've been a Christian and you understand you were baptized, understanding what it was like. To me, that's kind of like: uh, uh, Do you get remarried every year to your wife? It just doesn't make sense. Do you have a wedding ceremony, or or baptism is this ultimate symbol of of new birth? Do we climb back in our mother's womb to get rebirthed every year? That just doesn't make sense to me. If baptism, if you were baptized as an infant, then yes, I think it's a good thing for you to do. Because think about it. What kind of meaning did it have when you were an infant? And if you do it now, what kind of meaning does it have now to you? You know, personally, I, I mentioned I grew up in a tradition that baptized infants. And when I came to faith in Christ at age 11, I, I, there was no emphasis on baptism. Nobody said anything about baptism. I didn't get baptized. I actually didn't get baptized till I was already out of seminary in full-time ministry as a pastor. And then, you know, why did I do it? Was it a tremendously emotional experience for me? Other than the fact that uh, it was a portable baptistry and it was set up right underneath the air conditioning vent and it was 55 degrees, there wasn't a whole lot of emotion on my part with that experience, right? But it was a very meaningful thing for me. It was a very beautiful thing to know I'm following God in a matter of obedience that He asks me to follow Him in.
If you didn't really understand repentance and forgiveness and making Jesus as Lord of your life and it was just something you did, you were in a church that kind of said this is what you do and it didn't make any sense to you, you just did it because it was a religious thing and and now since that time you've come to an understanding of relationship with Christ and what repentance is and, and, and you've made that decision, then yes, it would be appropriate to get baptized in that. Acts 19 gives us an interesting example. We see in that passage uh, that Paul goes to this place and, and these people are, have been baptized into John's baptism of repentance. And Paul basically says to him, yeah, but d- did you receive the Holy Spirit? Did you understand Jesus? Did you understand this kind of repentance? And their answer was no. What are you talking about? I don't understand that. And Paul is basically telling us a truth there that we need to understand. That baptism is not just a simple not just a symbol. It's not just something we do. There is something very real that the Spirit of God comes into our life and does in that. A preacher that I used to really admire used to talk about it this way. He used to talk about our life in God and experiencing God in faith is oftentimes made up of points of contact. Points of contact could be things where maybe when we're worshiping, we choose to, we, we feel God wanting to ask us to surrender. So we raise our hands as an active thing. And somehow when we raise our hands as an action in response to our faith response to God, His Spirit comes and touches us and empowers us. Another point of contact might be God wants you to pray for healing in a friend who's going through sickness. And, and until you actually take the action to go to them, talk to them, and pray with them, God's power doesn't show up. That's a point of contact. We respond to God's ask of us to do faith steps by taking action. And baptism is one of those same things. And God's presence shows up. It's not religion. It's relationship. So what is Jesus asking us today? Some of you may be here and and you have only heard of religious things in the past about what faith with God means. This faith with God thing is a relationship. He's asking for you to repent, to receive His presence, His power, to walk past the guilt, out of the guilt, leave it in the past, have no regret, walk forward into a new life. And if you've never made the decision to follow Jesus in that way, then I'm asking you to consider that. And I'm actually bold enough to trust that His Spirit is here touching you now, that you're feeling a sense of conviction because He's a real person. It's not just me talking. It's not just somebody else around you infusing you with ideas. He's here. In conviction, it's His hand. It's His finger touching us, saying, I'm inviting you to change here. If you think about it, if you don't believe in God, if you believe in an, uh, an atheistic view of the world, then there is no reason, no basis for us to feel bad about anything other than something that hurts that we want self-interest in. And if you're feeling convicted to repent, that doesn't fit in a Darwinian world. That only fits when there's a God who puts his finger on you and says, This is right, and I'm inviting you to change. If you're here today and you have made that decision, whether it was uh, last week, yesterday, or 10 years ago, and you've never followed Jesus in baptism, today we only have one pre-planned baptism. We're looking so forward to celebrate that, but I'm asking you to get wet today and respond to that. And so in just a minute when we invite people to be baptized, if that's you and you've never taken that step to be baptized, 
then I want to invite you to walk up here and walk behind the stage through that curtain. There'll be some people who will meet you and prepare you. If for whatever reason you're here at this 915 service and, and, and you don't want to get wet in your clothes, well, you've got a second opportunity. You could, go, you could talk to them and you could go home, change clothes, come back and be baptized after the 11 service. But we may also... I forgot to ask, do we have stuff for them? Do we have any clothes? We may have some clothes that you could change into. So, you know, just respond to that. And if you're here today and you're carrying regrets from the past, you still beat yourself up over stuff you've done in the past and you say, I can't walk free of that. I can't be different. That is worldly sorrow. That is a misunderstanding of what God is bringing to you as a gift. And I invite you to turn to someone or, or even come down as the wor- worship continues to play and, and have somebody pray for you. Because God wants you to live life with no regret. He wants to free you today. So, Austin and family, go ahead and come and, and, and the band's going to start playing and just go ahead and rise and sing with them because we've got a couple of worship songs and you'll see the baptisms on the screen in a minute. And if you're here today and you want to respond to accept Christ, please come now uh, or just as the band starts to play. If you're here today and you have never followed Jesus in baptism and you want to do it today, please do it. Please come uh, as we start to play. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.